From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 172 of the Killing It podcast i'm carl joined today by dave and ryan as always and uh, i have to apologize for the use of the word bullshit but you know taking a tip from monty python uh, it only appears once in this episode so you're past it now <laughs> you, have, you have survived the moment of cursing <laughs> gents i'm gonna ask a question today what's the longest or most complex thing you have memorized so i have memorized a bit of uh, uh something from when i was a camp counselor it is literally the most useless thing i know and it is it and didn't little kitten don't don't little boat nip skiddly oat and don't and bodos could eat and dat and wad out and chew which i can repeat endlessly and teach you how to do but uh it now occupies permanent space in my long-term memory and it will be there forever <laughs> See, that is deep long-term memory memorization. I, I, I do not recall any of the things, <laughs> honestly, that I, that I memorized like that. Uh, AP English class, senior year of high school, it was given to us as a challenge to memorize. There were several things you could choose from, but the, uh, the introduction to the Epic of Gilgamesh was one of the options and and it was worth a, a very sizable amount of stuff when when you were actually uh, comparing uh, whether you could just gaff off and not pay attention to a test that you were about to take it would replace one of those and it was a great deal of freedom and pride i legit do not remember a single word <laughs> but if somebody started you might be able to finish you stand. Yeah, <laughs> you would unlock a certain yeah. part of my gray matter, and I would, I would have a little glitch for right. a you second, go, and then I would be like that. Right. I mean, like, like there's, there's, like, I wanted to say, like, by default, I might go, like, well, I learned the Lord's Prayer as a kid, but I'm not sure I could do that right now. I know the Pledge of Allegiance, right, for the U.S. Like, that's, that's a long passage. I could, I could do that one right now. Uh, I know all the words to the Star Spangled Banner, right? So I think that's a little, a little longer. Uh, like, but I don't, I will freely admit I have a memory like a sieve. Like it does not generally keep specific things like that. Uh, I'm really good with locations and, and, uh, you know, visualization or like, or I can remember places we've been and I'm good with directions, but like when anything memorized, oh no, that those, those items are long since replaced by other flashes. That just makes you a digital native, Dave, because in a in a Google brain world, we, we can't even remember phone numbers anymore. We just we don't even bother. Program it in once. There, you're done. There's some truth in that. So uh, one of my undergraduate degrees is in English, in which I memorized, you know, whole passages from plays and, uh, you know, the first several books of Paradise Lost and that, that sort of thing. But then I discovered that in order to actually pass exams in English, I needed to have enough knowledge to get things done. And then when I switched to political science, discovered I need to know how to find things. <laughs> I don't have to memorize anything. I just know I need to know where to find it. And I think that has served me well over the years. 
I'm 100% with you. I've always been a, I need to know where to find things, not a must have it at, at instant recall. And I've always leveraged that. And then Google's made me Although, ridiculous. I, I will say, I'm not sure if it is productive for me at all, but I still do remember every single word to every single song on the Joshua Tree album. Just because if you put it to music, it'll stick in my brain forever. Well, if you don't put it to music, there's also Those depending on your age when music comes out, you may have so many so much activity going on in your brain that that literally just digs those those uh, connections so deep that they will be there forever. That's true. I could probably there are probably a couple of songs. And then the other thing is is that and I will say this with a smile. Like I don't think I could do it instantly. But I can definitely recite all of Star Trek II, the movie, <laughs> along with it. <laughs> like, the whole I'm film. I'm probably that way can... with Monty Python's Holy Grail because we had an album yeah. of the soundtrack of Monty Python and the Holy Grail when I was a kid. So it was literally the soundtrack of that movie from start to finish. And I don't think that I, I don't think those count quite the same way as me. <laughs> Not like the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> No. Well, gents, we're brought to you today by our friends at PCMatic, endpoint security built on a zero trust default deny foundation. Finally, a lightweight, simple to deploy, and easy to manage approach to application allow listing. The perfect complement to your current security stack. No minimum and no annual contracts. Find out more by visiting PCMatic.com slash MSP today. Excellent. Thank you very much. And let me tee up our first topic today, an article that we are pointing to from our friends over at the New York Times talking about moderators on social media platforms. It's worth a read. It's actually very interesting analysis of it. But the central question that they are talking about is, by the way, on Reddit, on Facebook, on these other popular platforms, if there is a moderator who kind of maintains the peace and, and keeps things on topic, that human is almost always an individual. So uh, the, the question is asked, a, a, is that the right way to moderate content on these platforms? And B, do you think those humans deserve a little hazard pay because of the stuff that they generally encounter? So uh, from your perspective, guys, I'd love to know, what do you think about A, the current approach, the model for moderation right now, and how could we actually improve on that? One of the interesting uh, numbers here is that uh, they estimate that if you were to have to actually pay these folks, uh, it would collectively be about $3.4 million worth of unpaid labor on Reddit, which is 3%, 3% of one estimate of uh, Reddit's revenue from advertising in 2019. I have to say, I think these people probably uh, get some points in heaven but if you added money to the equation, I think you'd have some people drop out because they are contributors to a community, not people who are doing this uh, so that they can get rich. They are, they are building reputations and they are building um, an audience and they are feeling good about themselves for giving and they're feeling good about themselves for being recognized. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I would love to uh, uh, talk to a psychologist about what would happen uh, if you if you dropped a dollar in there and see how many people just simply disappeared, the answer for me it's it's that it's such a complicated issue on the intention of the community, um, and so I'm gonna gonna use sort of two extremes on this. Like on one extreme, like if if the community is 
absolutely a corporate entity which is designed to drive revenue like it's it's a customer community customer service community kind of thing it's like oh yeah that's paid that is very clearly a paid engagement that that organization better be better be investing in with staff but you can immediately go to well there's degrees of that right you do want to reward power users at some level and you may give them kind of other benefits but then you can go all the way out to there are things that are purely community driven for the love of the thing and building community is its own value and i'm not sure that that sh i don't believe that should be paid now what i think what i do think is done is is that there is we're looking at compensation through a lens of just money and there are other ways to reward community leadership that are not necessarily writing checks they could have access to better tools they could have access to more information they could get earlier access to to things there's there, there's all kinds of other things that you can that you can pay, and I'm putting pay in big quotes, your most loyal fans, for example, without it necessarily being purely compensated uh, from a monetary perspective. I think we're the, the question is kind of wrong and that we're trying to solve it with one answer. Should moderators be paid? Yes or no? It's like, well, that isn't the right question necessarily. It's what kind of moderators, what situations, what tools do they need? What are the models of compensation? And it is way wider than just saying they should all be paid or not. See, and, and I will go to the other extreme of the argument. I recognize that concept of community and volunteerism. And, and as professionals, all of us participate in various communities where you sit on boards or you participate in activities that are not compensated because you are passionate about the activity. And I buy that. But I don't buy that any of these platforms are not commercial entities. And I think that it is a cost of doing business in a responsible environment to actually ensure that the product you send out into the world is not poisonous to the world. I mean, some people might want to wake up tomorrow and go, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to open a, a meat processing plant and I'd like to make the world's best bacon and pork chops and send it out there into the world. And you would be completely free to do that as long as you actually pay for that moderator to come in and ensure that there is safety in all of your operations, that's not negotiable. I, it, it baffles me that we've arrived at a point where all these platforms say, well, it's just too expensive. I just can't do it. Well, then the answer is, well, then you don't get to be a platform in our world <laughs> if you can't afford to moderate yourself. Let me, let me make a last sort of point to this because I think the other thing we didn't even get into it was the I think the other lens of this is does the platform monetize based on advertising or is the platform simply exist for the the sake of the community and those are also another lens that's different if there's another group that's monetizing the effort by attaching ads to it that is different than a community that exists for its own sake that is not monetized by another person that simply is that can be a very different thing well and totally. you know at the end of the day people do things for different reasons and the reason that I participate a certain way on Reddit is different than how I participate on on Facebook, and I have different reasons for doing so. So do the moderators, right? Uh, and you know, we have figured out ways to reward people who uh, do things like in Yelp. You know, they will 
have parties for their biggest contributors and all of that. So uh, there, there are lots of different ways to do it. But at the end of the day, I think those who, who choose to do it so that they can give back, money is not going to make any difference. Yeah. Well, I'm going to move us into topic two because we could go forever there, but we are, we are on time, we gents. forever on anything. Uh, and this is also true. <laughs> I've got a point is this we're, we're leveraging a Washington Post article here with a headline of hacking Russia was off limits. The Ukraine war made it a free for all. The discussion is around the, the fact that the, you know, for for the better part of uh, sort of a decade now, the general thinking had been that, well, Russian is Russia is kind of the safe haven for these hackers. And but attacking back is problematic and thus they have been off limits. Of course, now the war in Ukraine has really just opened that all up, and and now uh, outbound and inbound hacking across that line is is just happening, and the and and the counterinsurgence is definitely pushing back into Russia and, and wreaking havoc both online. The question, though, is 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 this good, <laughs> or are we or is this just one more step towards complete bedlam? Well, you know, it's interesting to me that. It's, it's almost the same as the Russian army in that there was this assumption that you do not want to mess with the, the country that is funding all of this outbound evil activity. Um, but it turns out that they have insecure passwords and they don't have a lot of stuff encrypted and it, like they are as weak as anybody. and. Uh, they've sort of made an enemy for themselves. Um, I, I do think it's a very scary time. It is a, it's a time where we should all be quite concerned about how Russia is going to react to being a victim and what this will mean going forward. Uh, but it's, it's an area where it's almost like it's more of a Wild West than anything on the Internet is uh, the activity going on with with. I want to say spy versus spy, but it's like hacker versus hacker inside the Russian so-called republic. See, and, and I think this is a classic case of bully psychology. There's a, there, there's a just a baseline reality that says, oh, you don't want to tell that guy no, even if what he's doing is bad and unacceptable because you fear what the potential escalated consequences would be. Well, that's exactly how bullies keep taking away kids' school lunch money from the dawn of time. It's not an acceptable model. And so my, my reaction as I read through this article, uh, I learned a, a phrase from, from a television commercial for a taco shell product uh, <laughs> several years ago. Is it bedlam or is it justified? Uh, Por que no los dos? Why can we not have both? Uh, in, in other words, yeah. It's what you get when you're the one out there initiating the problems. You get what you give and you deserve to get that back. But to Carl's point, it is causing an escalation that I don't think any of us understands what the what the end game is. There's one scenario that I was reading recently where the answer is it's all the emperor's clothes and 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 they've been holding us at bay with the fear of their of their kickback. And in the end, it might just legitimately turn out to be like, uh, they, they don't actually have that much power to come back. And it was really not a bad situation. 
or it could be the other scenario. And that one doesn't it's, have good it's, it, it's funny because when I when I throw out the question, right, and I throw it out the way it is, it's an, I present it as an or, right? Like, is this good or is this another start for Bedlam? And my answer is yes. <laughs> right. and, and actually, so what, because what I mean by this is, is yes, it is distinctly a step towards more chaos. Well, one of the, one of the alarming stats in this article we're pointing to, so it says, so in April, the number of presumed Russian credentials, that's those ending in a dot RU, uh, jumped to encompass 50% of the global total of compromised credentials. That's pretty impressive, right? And it, and right, more than five times as many as in January. So it's it is literally like Russia hasn't been the victim before, and they're not sure how to react, um, except uh, you know to just just as with their military, do what they can, and they're bigger and they have more money in the long run, so they assume they're going to prevail. Well, and and thus why I, I'm able to say, is this good? Yes because we need it to get worse, I think, for it to get better. Because what we had before, had prior was an imbalance, right? We have the attackers coming out of Russia feeling where they were protected because their hosts were just going, oh, this is great. We were, it's all upside, no downside. Now there is downside for essentially all the players. Um, we might be able to make an argument that China still doesn't have a downside in the same way, but let's focus here on Russia. Now in this conflict, everyone has downside. Everyone is both, you know, attacking and being attacked. This has always been the theory of, you know, of nuclear standoff is the same way as mutual self-destruction. We're moving towards that, but if everyone has the same risks, it's far easier to come to a place of compromise and at least of quiet, <laughs> uneasy peace when you all have the so same So here's risks. the next question. If you take a cynical view of, of foreign relations and say it's better for us to muck things up overseas so that they won't attack us personally, uh, can we also say the same thing with this? Let let the Russians fight the Russians. <laughs> let them keep it all inside their country, uh, trying to destroy each other's networks, and maybe we'll have less of that going on towards the United States. Or maybe I'm not convinced that'll yeah, happen. Or, say, <laughs> or in an era of computers, does it just not make any difference? It can't. Yeah, and, but I also but but I go back to my. I mean, it is my fallback measurement, but it works. Is I look at financial motivations here, and I go attacking one another on this if i'm looking at it from a financial outcomes is like ah, that's not good for them but because they're going to want to mine for to for this to be a profitable enterprise that is attacking generally western targets and so more it's the now there's just a higher cost to doing it and thus i think it'll get a little bit more off balance and they'll be less inclined to do it well, and, and that's the thing is that we all learned in 1960s United States television programming that the best the best way to deal with a bully is to punch him back, hit him in the nose and see what happens. Now, on a geopolitical scale, that could really have bad consequences and it could it could be terrible advice. But I do agree with you, Dave. If you don't think there are any consequences for bad behavior, then it's just philosophical whether or not you choose not to do that bad behavior. But once you realize direct and tangible consequences, you're going to think twice next time before you do it. So, yes, I think it's a good development. And also, yes, it's going to get ugly in the near future. On a lighter note, Russia finally found somebody who will take payment in rubles. 
They found somebody. <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> now they need their own like Russian Dogecoin. All right, let's let's move on to topic number three, which oddly enough is also involving Russia. So some people may or may not know that there is an organization called Yandex, Y-A-N-D-E-X, which is sort of the global um, competitor to Google. Uh, Yandex started out as sort of, hey, we're going to do some hosting and we're going to do some search. They've taken over 60% of the search in Russia. And then they said, hey, you know, we're, we're a big tech company. We can do it all. So they do taxi apps. It used to be that the taxi service in Russia was a disaster until uh, these guys partnered with Uber, uh, who couldn't get a foothold in Russia. Uh, and then they do email. Uh, they provide uh, Grubhub robot food delivery at the Ohio State University uh, and had plans to go to 250 campuses. But sadly, now uh, one change by the government of Russia has basically destroyed Yandex's future. Uh, and that change is they have to have their news filtered through the Russian government. And so their five top uh, headlines per the day, which was their key feature of their search site, um, has all become whatever the Kremlin wants them to say. And so um, people are leaving in droves. Programmers are abandoning the organization. Their percentage of the markets in various areas has uh, diminished dramatically. And their ability to expand around the world has been dramatically hit. So it's sort of like this is our one hope for a truly modern Russian tech company seems to have faded. Uh, what say you? An authoritarian break all of the bits that work. I'm shocked, shocked. I say, I mean, it's like, you know, you, you have, you, from a personal level, like I certainly don't ever want to wish harm on people that are just trying to, you know, build something or, or the employees of this. Like that's not the angle on this. It's, it's the, Look, this is what happens. This is what happens when, you know, with war, it's very destructive in all kinds of second-order effect ways. Uh, this is the consequence that uh, the you know the leadership in Russia is imposing on their people. There isn't a solid argument to be made of. Look, the people, if they want this stuff or, uh, to to work, they're going to have to push back on the forces that are. Uh, causing that disruption, you can see, and that's where revolutions happen, right? Is because you've taken away the solid base that they're looking to build from. This, this is it's it's not a it's not a story I want to cheer, right? I'm definitely not happy to see this kind of thing happen, but this is what happens. Um, and you know, capitalism is is a broken system, but it's the best of a bunch of bad ones. And you got authoritarianism, and well, this is what happens, right? And we've got versions over in China too. Anybody seen Jack Ma recently? Didn't think so, uh, <laughs> right? Like this, that's how this stuff falls out in, in authoritarian regimes. See, and and I would agree with that, Dave. I think on a on an institutional level, on an economic level, and an individual level, this is both unbelievable and terribly disappointing, right? When I look at it from an industrial point of view, this has historically been a very keen success story. Uh, they have, they've not just aggregated a tremendous amount of traffic and audience and provided some ancillary services, as you said, Carl, they did it well. 
right? Like this has been a generally well-received success story. This was a company that came from nothing, that emulated a, a foreign business model, applied their own spin to it, aggregated relevant services, and did well with that thing. Now, I've done business around the world, and, and whenever we work in different territories, different zones, uh, the, the Russian territory has been the fastest growing revenue contributor globally speaking, for most significant IT vendors for 10 or 12 of the past 15 years, right? It has been a radical growth story and it has been extremely beneficial to them culturally, economically, as well as kind of geopolitically, right? It brought them into the club of nations and, and we thought that it was going to cause them to behave well in order to continue to get the benefits of that. But I will say, I know way too many good technology professionals in Russia who, whether they worked here at this company or at other uh, companies that, that we've worked with over the years, brilliant technologists, motivated entrepreneurs, very capable professionals who are getting squooshed for no reason of their own. Now, we live in a world where a lot of fortunes are turning, right? Where the, the VC valuations for Silicon Valley companies are cratering to a realistic level, where cryptocurrencies are cratering to realistic levels. And I would argue those are proper market corrections because they were false values that were never justified. This one is completely different. This was a good company that got squooshed for not any of their own bad decisions. And just uh, one stat from the article that the value of Yandex went from about 31 billion to 7 billion. Most of us could figure out how to, you know, prop up a company on 7 billion and make it go again. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, what you sort of alluded to there, Ryan, is our belief from whatever, 15, 20 years ago, that we have a flat earth, right? And that um, the more we prop up other countries by propping up their technology by outsourcing to those countries, the more we all become intertwined and then they don't have any choice to all <laughs> become representative democracies. Ah, I, I so bought into that. I can't tell you. 15 years ago, I bought that hook, line, and sinker and have been outsourcing to other countries ever since um, and dramatically increased my travel because I believe that, that it really eventually it, that play will work. But today, as Dave pointed out, it's not working in China, it's not working in Russia. Um, but I think in the long term, it will. At, at some point, Putin is necessary, Xi is necessary so that those countries can say, man, we dodged a bullet, let's not go do that anymore. <laughs> I will <would> see. <laughs> and, and the takeaway that I have from this is, again, don't don't stop and think, you know, good guys, bad guys. I'm, I'm and I am the unintentional source of old-timey cultural references today, but <laughs> I remember the song that Sting once sang, I hope the Russians love their children too. I, I hope the Russian government loves their economy too, because I swear it's not their fault that it's going wrong. It's not like this was a bad business and we know plenty of those in the tech space where we have complained about them domestically and internationally over the years. Uh, there's plenty of of them that I think are bad actors. 
not these guys. And so that's where I come back to, boy, it'd be nice if we could use commerce as the international currency, but uh, maybe it's a little too craven to be successful in this situation. It depends because I think your your point there is is it's why uh, I do th tend to think that any con quote unquote conflicts with China would tend to be more economic and technology versus it going to full on conflict because the two economies are far more linked uh, than, and and the Chinese government recognizes that I think this is one case where the difference here is the Russian government doesn't care about its links to its European neighbors and has decided to bully its way through it thinking it won't matter. They're being proven wrong that don't think that the Chinese aren't watching that and saying, ah, we see. And while there, while there will be, while I don't, I do predict some level of conflict there, it will be technology and economically driven, not guns and, and tanks. The sad news is that from our perspective, from the U.S. perspective, we just have to watch and, and sort of get a handle on how complicated this is and how much it will affect what we do. Because the displacement of so many really smart technical people by the thousands continues. And every time there's a new bump in this story, it, it involves thousands and thousands of highly technical people deciding, you know, the minute I can get out of this country, I'm going to. And some of that is good. Some of it is simply giving us, you know, some of the warm bodies we need because we have millions of people uh, uh, shortage uh, in especially cybersecurity. Um, but it also means some of these people are just going to take their bad practices and their evil habits and say, oh, I'll just move my center of operations somewhere else. So both of those things affect us. And, you know, uh, volatility uh is uh, always something that affects markets and that's certainly going to be the case for us and for our industry for a long time to come yeah and and as you say carl uh, whether you were outsourcing in small bits or very very large engagements both ukraine and russia have been exceptional growth markets for offshoring in technical fields tremendous uh, capabilities and technical expanse right like really large numbers of really advanced technical skills and both of those are really not viable right now which only makes the recruiting problem over here that much more difficult sadly that will do it uh for this week's show i do want to remind people on a on a positive note you're an economy of one so don't let you know this get you down <laughs> go on and that do so what you can do in your business so and that will do it for episode 172 of the killing it podcast thanks for tuning in to the killing it podcast Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.